So welcome to this episode of the podcast. And I don't know if you can hear me laughing. You can hear laughter in my voice because I've just had the great privilege of spending a short while with Sue Hitzman, my very dear friend. And I like to say colleague, but I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't know what that really means. We have some common denominators. I think we share a fascination with fashion and a fascination with education and making a difference to people and and a very spiritual approach, I think, to it all. Very, very, very human. So thank you for being here. So thanks so much, Joanne. I'm privileged. Thank you. So what I wanted to start off asking you is, and and we've talked about how we identify with our work and how we identify with a brand. You have a brand, I know, almost in spite of yourself, Melt Method. And um, those of you out in the world who haven't heard of it, just get online and look up meltmethod.com because you'll find so much information. You won't even know what to do with yourself. There's so much there. Um, I want to ask you, Sue, how did it come about? What inspired you to begin? What what was in your heart when you began? Because I, I I I think you said you didn't start with a brand and then work out how to do it. So it, it yeah, I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't just wake up one day and I was like, I'm going to create a worldwide brand. Like it wasn't even on my mind. I was at the time I had been in fitness literally for my whole life since I'm 16. I've always had this obsession with aging because my great-grandmother, when I was 11, I think I had post-traumatic stress disorder. My great-grandmother was the spry woman. Next year I came, she was in an old folks home and uh, she didn't remember who I was. And I had said to my aunt, what happened to great-grandma? And she said, she just got old. And I was like, am I going to get old? She said, yes. I was like, well, how do you stop that from happening? So I've always... Uh, you know, what epitomized wellness when I was a kid were things like Jack LaLanne and Jane Fonda. So I got into the fitness industry very young, but then jump ahead in my late 20s, I got myself into chronic pain, veered me out of fitness and into the healing arts. And what was so fantastic for me was I, I went from the kind of heavier compression uh, and, and neuromuscular techniques, you know, like really working on musculoskeletal imbalances to understanding things like cranial rhythm or like the viscera could actually alter your posture. And as I got into light touch therapy and I started to practice on my clients and my clients were getting better and then they would call me and be like, what is it that you were doing? I was like, well, (laughs) I mobilized your liver. (laughs) It's like, and why does my back feel better? I'm like, well, the way that the theory is, and you're like, it's proposed that, you know, because the science wasn't so much there in, in my mind. And so it's like, you're not really sure what you're doing. But after a, a number of years, I've got to stop you right there. I love yeah. that you said that you never really know what you're doing. I mean, in one way, of course, you know what you're doing. Otherwise, you wouldn't be doing it. It's well, you know, you know, the technique. You know the technique, exactly. But I just love, I'm so sorry I interrupted you, but I just wanted to call you on how beautifully and artlessly you said, I don't know what I'm doing, because I I just talk a lot about being willing to not know, because unless you do, you can't invite in that intuitive response, right? Well, well, that's it, right? It's like, I I mean, Leon was somebody, Leon Cheta was somebody who had said, you know, the right intention, the right compression, the right waiting and listening and direction can completely change a body. Rather than thinking that you're doing anything, just holding the space in the right 
time and the right position with the right intention can, can be enough to change someone. And I was like, that was kind of mind blowing to me in the nineties when I, when I heard him say that. And it really, really stuck with me all those years. And for, for me, you're right. It's like, what, what is it that we're doing? You can speculate, but the, what, what I'm trying to do is blend with my client and help them to resolve chronic pain. And after doing that for many years in clinical practice, I was making all these great changes. And the way that Melt transpired was actually a client who had chronic TMJ and neck pain. Uh, after I had worked on her, she would get out of not having a migraine for a week, but then she'd come back and maybe I'd get her 10 days. And I said to her, it's something in your environment. If we could just, you know, figure out what it was in your environment that was really causing it, we could probably really combat this. And she said, well, if you could just invent a way for me to do to myself, what you do with your magic hands, I'd stay out of your office. And I was like, well, I'd be unemployed if that worked, but that does sound intriguing. I wonder if you could simulate light touch therapeutic intervention and alter the nervous system's reaction to what's going on in the body and change the conversation between mind and body. I wonder if that could be done. And so I just started playing around with balls and rocks and rollers. And I came up with this idea of taking PVC piping. I wrapped it in bubble wrap. I wrapped it in a yoga blanket and a yoga mat and I duct taped the thing together. And I started to do uh, some of the neck decompression techniques from cranial sacral therapy. And one day I did it. I decompressed my own neck. I knew I did it. I kept doing it. I gave it to this gal and she went from one week to two weeks to three weeks to a month without having to come to see me, didn't have a migraine, cured her back pain and her neck pain. And she said, if you could invent a way for my husband to stop complaining about your, her, his low back pain, you would really be a treasure. And so it was just actually a way for me to empower my clients to get out of my office. And as I, as that started to happen, the homework to me was the missing piece was to get the client more aware of what was going on in their body instead of me assessing them and saying, Oh, well, you know, I see these things in you, or I can ask these questions and I have x-ray vision and can tell you things about your body that you don't even know. It's, it's getting them aware. And the more aware they were, the more they were able to empower themselves to actually take action and change for themselves. And I think that was the winning ticket. Uh, and so I did that for about four years and was seeing thousands of clients in New York at that point. And, um, in what year are we then? Sorry. So, so, so that was in the late nineties. And so by 2004, I'd probably helped 5,000 people. And it was just, I was working on 50 people a week. I was just there every single hour. I was just exhausted at that point. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been in the fitness industry for all these years. I wonder if I could teach this in a group environment and maybe keep them out of the office altogether. They'd never have to come and see me at all. And I approached a. Just, I've got to laugh here. I've got to stop you a second. I know I'm interrupting you, but I I just love listening to you. I, we have a th- structural integration. You know, I'm a, like trained as a role yeah. as it were. And one of the things we're taught: you do this and this and this. You want a four session, a series, or a twelve series, but you want the client off your table, not on it. And you realize when you get out in the world that you're in straight away saying something that stuns people. What do you What do you mean you want me off your table? I'm not interested in you coming to see me over and over. Yeah, again. I'm not your mom. I don't want you in my house. I'll the time. I want you back into your own life. I've got I, want, to I want to get you off my table finally. Yeah, and then you'll send me another client because, you know, you'll send me another client because you'll recommend me. I need you out of it. And they're like, wow, you know, like, when can I go? And then they're engaged in their own healing process because they were engaged in the problem in the first place. Right. So then you 
somehow you, I love that. Anyway, I interrupted. Yeah, and that's it is you realize that a lot of pain that people have, again, is a lack of awareness, an emotional issue. It's a, it's a lack of self-worth, self-love, self-value, self-acceptance. And we get, we get frustrated inside of our skin. And so I think my, maybe my superpower has been to crack a little egg of hope in people to get them to actually realize that the human body is designed to heal. And if you, if you are in there every day, loving yourself, that this is what will heal you. And, uh, by 2004, again, I just helped so many people. I approached the local community center down the street from my house. And I was like, I've got this idea to create this technique and I've been doing it and it's like homework for my clients. And I think I could share it with everybody and maybe it would help everybody because everybody's got neck and low back pain. And um, m- m- my my boss, Caroline Colas, just said, yes, she's like, you're a great educator. You come, come on in. And I approached a company that made tools and there were no soft tools on the market. And I got a company to develop this soft roller and I started teaching these classes. And there was just in a month, there was just a line out the door of people like hearing about this class that could transform your life. And I was teaching like five to seven classes a week. And in New York City, it was just an, you know, uh, just an incredible time because you'd watch people kind of limp in and walk out. Uh, and uh, just this is life changing. And I can't believe this. And I was like, I really have something. And so I coined the term melt, which at the time stood for myofascial energetic length technique. But after about 2008, it really outgrew the acronym because the reality of it is myofascia is just an aspect of fascia. And the more I started learning by 2004, it was like right there was when I met Tom Finley and Robert Schleip and I got into the fascia research community. And yeah. uh, and and you started to understand fascia as a continuous network. And and then it was like, well, I can't call it NELT, like neurofascial, like, because that, that doesn't make any sense or yeah. felt, right? Like, so it's like, so, so I just took the periods away. And I always say that melt is just a simple self-care practice to take a stiff, inflexible uh, or organism, a human body, and turn it back into a malleable, flexible, adaptable system, because that's what we are. We're supposed to adapt. We're, we're transformative. We are constantly changing. And I think your world gets awfully small if you lose the capacity to change. So melt is a way to turn yourself back into a fluid moving system. I love that. And it's so heart led, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, I just, I really, you know, it it never gets old teaching a class and watching people come in and say, I don't know if I can get down on the floor or I, my back is so bad. I don't think this can help me. And I was like, well, if you don't think it can help, I wouldn't do it because you have to at least have a little belief that, that something might help. Could, could you maybe change your narrative? And they're like, okay, I'll change. And then they walk out of there going, it worked. I was like, miracle, you know? And so like, you know, I'm just walking around feeling like I've contributed to my local community. And, and, you know, it's, it's so heartfelt because you're being thanked by people who felt like nothing would help them. And, and when they're thanking me, I said, but you did it to yourself. 
I just gave you a tool, but you did it. So own the fact that your body is designed to heal. I've just opened a door to you. I didn't push you in there. I've just helped you to get in, but it's your body. Now now that you're there, I tell people you should say the old proverb of, I'm sorry, please forgive me. I love you. Now, I'm sorry I've been gone so long, but now that I'm back inside, I promise I'll stay. Because when we're in pain, we kind of tune it out. We get out of our bodies. And so I I think Melt and, and my hope is to be able to contribute to bringing people back into their bodies and, and living better in their bodies and feeling better as a, as a human being. Well, I want to say thank you on behalf of a lot of people. And I know some of your wonderful teachers, I know you have thousands of teachers around the world and I just love the work because I'm, I just love it. And I'll never forget the day when we met because we were surprised that we were both in LA at the same time. And I was, I was doing a little piece to my, colleagues there where I study spiritual science and um or spiritual sciences I should say and I'll never forget that day because there were there were hundreds online but there were like about 40 people in the room I think and we knew you were going to be in LA and I was in LA and I invited you in and said just come in come in get mic'd up come on come and watch come and be part of it come and stand next to me and talk and you and I just riffed do you remember and the I people do up, I loved like, it did you did you two rehearse and it was like no we <laughs> It was so beautiful. But that's just it is, you know, I think that, we, you know, we all come together because even the people that I've met in our, like, again, we're colleagues in this industry. I, I always say, you know, connective tissue and the connected uh, network. I don't yeah. find it ironic that there is such a a connection between everyone. And we really do just somehow connect and we're just spirits kind of in different bodies, but sharing the same frequencies. And so we find one another. And that was such a, I mean, I left there, like I told my friend when I had left, her, I was like, I just got to do the coolest thing. And this is like a spiritual center, which it was so beautiful and wholesome. And I'm such a spiritual being anyway. And so it was, and then to tie fascia into this concept. It, and, and of course it, it, it resonates it resonated with everyone in the room. But when you're talking about uh, a, a part of a body that most people don't know anything about, that when you start explaining how vast it is and the roles it plays in your longevity and your existence, yeah. and it's, it's, it's amazing that we, we even now are only now starting to figure out ways to define it, to describe it, to measure it, to study it, right? Because it, we're, we're in such a controversy about fascia. Is it a tissue? Is it a system? Is it an organ? I'm like, I think the more we try to define it and, and give a sentence to it, actually we're limiting the very confines of something that is so abundant. I think that's, but that's our, that's our linear that's way of And, you know, one of the things I love about having the approach from a spiritual scientific point of view, and and I'm I'm not going to go into what that is, but what it's given me permission to do. And I think this is hard for all of us. It's hard for me. So I'm not saying I've got it and everyone else hasn't. I'm, I'm, I'm offering this is that there's a mystery to it. And there's supposed to be because part of us is mysterious. And we, that for me is the magic of it. And, and the, the, I love the excitement in understanding fascia. I have to say, I struggle with um, some of the ways in which it's being understood because it's like 
I've, I've used this metaphor in other podcast episodes. It's like pinning a butterfly to the wall with pins and then trying to work out the metamorphic process of how it went from egg to caterpillar to butterfly all by itself on its own in its own chrysalis that it made by itself, by the way, just yes. saying, and trying to deduce that backwards and say, well, it was a system. Well, no, it wasn't. It was a function. Well, it was genetic. Well, yes, it was an epigenetic. Well, then how do we describe it as a as a whatever it is? Is it an organ? Well, yes, it's a what is it a being? Is it you know all these visible and invisible well, aspects? But that's it. Is I think a very important thing that's and and it's to me it was the problem. Okay, like again, I, I when I started doing this work in the early two thousands. And and nobody had really heard about fascia in the fitness industry. And when I went up to, I was so excited. I had amassed all this information and I got back onto the, onto the uh, fitness, you know, uh, circuit for, for conferences. And I had kind of disappeared for four years because I had just veered out of this whole idea of no pain, no gain and the general fitness mindset and into this like fascia stuff. And when I came back, I was so excited to talk about it. And this woman kind of at the, I was, you know, had, made these huge points. And she goes, you know, you can't exercise your fascia. I was like, I didn't, I failed. I failed. You know, I just thought I did not get nothing resonated with anyone. But, but what's, but what has happened or the problem with fascia is that we are understanding fascia on a cellular level and the science has gotten that myopic. And it's so incredible. This this microcosm of yep. chaos in it. But yep. but the problem is, is that sometimes people are taking words and terms on a cellular level and trying to bring it to the macro, right? Yep. So yep. when we say fascia becomes, it, it has active contractile cells. All of a sudden people are thinking like a bicep contracts and like different type of contraction. Actually, when fascia contracts, it kind of broadens, it sort of pulls. It, instead of contracting together, it actually kind of gets taut rather than tight, if you will. And and that's a, a bizarre thing for people to even wrap their brain around, like that a, that a cell can contract and as it does, it's pulling collagen towards it in a sense. It's, it's tightening something there. It's a mind-blowing concept, but that is happening again on a microscopic level. And if you're not careful, the problem in fitness has been that it, it took too fast of a jump into biomechanics. And I think there's still a lot of story here about how our cells need a stable environment to thrive. And that's where the biotensegrity concepts are so critical to understand and, and how fascia as a continuous global system yeah. is the stability system of the body. And therefore it's relevant to all other systems, neurological, chemical, psychological, emotional, everything we can relate to fascia on every level. And we're, we're just at the, at the precipice of a top thing, starting to look at all of it and saying, now that we kind of know these things, what the heck are we going to do with this information? And how are we going to better measure it so that we can validate it in a hundred years from now? Absolutely. And I think, interestingly, this is the same issue they had 400 years ago when the microscope and the telescope were both being invented and examined exactly. and grown at the same time. And you said it beautifully that at the micro level, we can't use quite the same language. And, you know, one of the things John Sharkey says over and over again is that the language that a, a brain surgeon needs in order to do understand the fascia from a point of view of 
using bloodless cutting planes and helping people recover more rapidly from surgical intervention is a very different language even to what a cardiovascular surgeon would speak and different language to a clinician who's handling manual therapy or a physical therapist or or movement therapist, shall I say, who's working in movement. And I think one of the things that you've managed to do with Melt so brilliantly is put some of the power back to the person. And you said something brilliant earlier on before we were recording about the fact that you don't need to have the scientific research paper behind why you feel better when before you had pain and you couldn't walk properly and now you can. I'm paraphrasing you. But I'd love you to elaborate on that a bit for my listeners because you said it so beautifully that this difficulty well, you know, of reaching and I, and I can say this from a lot of different ways, but when I first started teaching Melt, again, I was like super knee deep into the science. And so when I first started teaching classes, I would bring strips of cow fascia into the room and try to ex- like let people touch it and to explain what fascia was. And they were like, did, is that from a, where did you get that fascia? It was like, did you kill somebody? Or like, I don't know what that is. And, and then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to explain. I can't believe fibro- right, I'm trying to play, explain fibroblasts and glycoaminoglycans and proteoglycans. And people were like, I, I believe you <laughs> that fascia is important. Just tell me what to do. I don't know about anything. Right. So, so the reality of it is, People just want to feel better, oh. and we all do. And so if you can offer them a vehicle, I I have actually gotten to the part of, of my career where I don't try to deliver any scientific information to anyone until they say to me, Sue, how does this actually work? And then if they ask, then I'll be like, okay, so this is a big story. And then I'll sit down with them and I will slow down my speech and I will try to explain it in a very simple way about how connective tissue reacts and responds to everything. And suddenly you see their eyes sort of look up like as if their brain is going through a file cabinet. And then, and then there's like this awareness, this awakening of everything like so that's why my cesarean caused back pain is because the tissue kind of got stitched together but why would it cause back pain and I'm like because it's all connected as a cylinder on a layer and that layer is you tight it's going to pull and so that's going to strain the backside unless you hydrate the tissue and create the glidability and then it's like ding what well now that we've help my back pain, will it come back? And I said, no, now we can actually strengthen you and we can work you out of these patterns and we can get you to a new place in life. We don't, we don't need to go back there anymore. We can move forward. And, and I think that's a, an important thing is that, you know, science is, is not there to, uh, to validate things so that we can sell stuff to people, right? That's not why we do science. We do science to measure. And science says, if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist, right? But I can't really measure my consciousness, but I can guarantee I'm more consciously aware than most people, okay? Like how, well, how do you know? I do not have a scientific study about my brain, but I can guarantee it's true, right? I know that this is a fact, right? Uh, so so I think that um, science is an extremely powerful tool to measure the actual what is happening in the body. And the problem here is that just because you can measure things that are happening in the body 
it might actually not be why people feel better. Exactly. I love that because you can measure the method, you can measure the benefit, but the outcome is personal, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I wonder if sometimes, I mean, I've seriously had people come into my office in such severe pain, they could barely get in the door. And I, I listen to them. They speak to me. I am now, whatever it is that sort of guides me, I'm helping this person to calm down, to decrease their stress, to let them know they're safe, to redirect their mind and their body's connection, and to try to get their body and mind to be more in love with each other, if you will. And they get up off of the table and instantly feel better. But is it really about what I did as a clinician, or could it just be that Sue's love met their body's love and together we allowed healing and connection and hope to come back into the form to then feel connected to someone who is really listening, making me feel safe. I, maybe I don't feel safe in my life. This is the first person who's really made me believe that I could get better. And, and could it just be, I'm just going to throw this out there, that what really makes us feel better is feeling loved by another. And I think we need a little bit more love in the world and more compassion in the world. And good therapists, I've never had a therapist say the reason that they do their job is to make money or to be famous or to you know leave a legacy. I think we do things because we have a gift, because we love feeling like we're contributing to the world, that we're that we're creating positivity, that we are fulfilling our own destiny. And I think that that's why we should do things is because we feel like this is, you know, this is what we're here to do. My dad used to always say, you should do things that um, make you helpful in the world that, that, you know, so that you can be help of help to others, be helpful to others. Don't sit around waiting for other people to help you or, you know, wait for your Prince Charming to come and, you know, make, give you a lavish life. My dad was like, it's never going to happen anyway. So buckle in for being by yourself for a long time. So, you know, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? But the, these are, these are the things that shape us and make us who we are and all of the hardships that we have, even in the bad times that we have the losses. I think that what they do is they make us more awake and aware of how short the human experience is and how much we have to offer one another. If we just connect to each other. I I love that. You know, I do. And I also love what you said about uh, loving each other. But I think and I think and I know you've spoken about this before, so it's not different to what you're saying is loving ourselves. And I think when we take time out to be with ourselves, whether it's on a mat doing movement, whether it's with melt and I and I love melt because it gives you that feedback um, is this falling in love with yourself again and realizing this is the other thing you're realizing your capacity to self-administer to self-regulate to self-authorize and then you know it's when, when I'm kind of teaching anything based in embryology I just start off with saying to people you came into this world the size of a pencil dot. I mean, I don't know when you came in. I'm not saying you were you were an egg and your grandmother and your great-grandmother, you know, all that. I, I, I know that continuum. But you were the size of a pencil dot and you self-organized into you. Yeah, I love, yeah, Van Der Waals saying I'm exactly. a process. 
you're a pro, you're a performance and Yarp is, you know, very, very dear to me. And I, I love it when he says, no, it, it's, it's not a cell. It's not a fertilized egg. It's a unicellular being that zygote is you. And, you know, no acorn goes to acorn school to become an oak tree. Innate to that is that 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 becomingness, that power, that performance. And I think what happens when you have the approach that you have is that people actually feel so empowered. And when when you sit there and say to them, you're already a genius, you're already brilliant, you you already self-organized this. I mean, look, Sue, you did that, You, you, you know, and and we we live in a competitive environment sometimes and i think remembering that and coming to see you with a back pain and then being reminded mm-hmm. through this self-aware process mm-hmm. you didn't need to be done too you did need the yeah. help i mean i think we've both learned some a lot of lessons through hardship to ask for help but that's yes another podcast yes we but we need one another to get through this life but it's interesting this this past year i I, we've after you know covid had stopped all of the um live events right i moved everything online which was wonderful but there's really nothing like being in a group and for me I kind of feed off of that energy. And the thing I picked up, I had 111 people in the, in, in over the course of almost uh, 20 days. And it kept coming up almost the same thing. And so I kept writing it down on the board with every group is somebody would say something like, Oh, well, I have a bad knee or I have a bad back or, or I can't do that or this isn't for me. And I, and, and I, and I would write on the board where, and this big question, where are you in your self practice? And really we are, because if we're a process, then you need to practice your process, right? And so when I said self practice, I would then around the word self, like fill in the blank, self-love, self-talk, self-compassion, self-trust, self-acceptance, self-love, all of these things that sometimes we forget how beautiful being we are because there's a lot of self-loathing. There's a lot of story that is in all of us from the age of zero to seven as we're creating all these programs that, you know, if we're like an empty computer, zero to seven, you're creating all of those system preferences and all of the folders. But, but then you're working off of those folders all the way through your whole life and you're creating relationships and feeling the way you do in relationships because of how you felt when you were younger. And if you can't make the correlation, you become very disconnected with your very being. And you're right. I mean, the first step of melt, there's four R's of melt. And the first is reconnect. And that's it is you have to give yourself permission to go into your body and really sense what you feel. And I have to tell you in the many years of doing this now, that's a big ask for people because sometimes people go into their bodies and they can't give themselves permission to be in there and they don't wanna be in there. They hate being in there. They hate the way that they feel in their bodies because they really hate themselves. And I said, that's you cannot be in a, your own skin and hate it because you're a spirit occupying a body and utilizing a mind to have a human experience. And what is at what people see in outside is really what's happening inside of the self. So if you don't like the way you look, probably you don't like the way you feel. And then you don't like the way you look. It doesn't happen the other way. Um, but I think that there's a lot of that in our society where we could really learn from one another to have better self-talk 
um, and to trust ourselves a little bit more. And if on a daily basis, you stop, you stop working, you stop being a mother, you stop being a father, you stop being a parent, a a dog owner, a, a sibling, you are just you sitting quietly and feeling yourself. breathing and feeling your body. I think that this is the doorway into better health and better longevity and better vitality than anything else is that every day for at least 10 minutes a day, you get quiet. You say not one word and you go into your body and you sense what you feel. And some days I do it and I feel like a million bucks. And someday I'm like, "Hmm, something's here. But but it gives me inquiry. And so I might go 20 minutes or 30 minutes because I found something in myself. Maybe my mind can't quiet down. Maybe I my mind is chattering. I, I'm sitting in meditation and I keep thinking of this thing, right? Uh, that, that That's information. It's not shaming. It's just information. So I think that there's a big opportunity for people to become more empowered, to be in their bodies, and to transform their lives in just 10 minutes a day. And I think it can start there. And then once you understand how powerful it is, you'll probably spend more time caring for yourself than just 10 minutes. <laughs> I love that. And I, yeah, oh, so many things I want to say, but I want to, I want to go on so that people hear something that recently, because of the uh, International Fashion Research Congress in mm. Montreal recently, amazing. Um, I had uh John Sharkey was on talking about you and how fabulous your work was. And one of the things he said was, I don't understand why, for example, Sue Hitzman wasn't there just having people roll a ball under their feet while they were sitting there or their hands or whatever. And, you know, one of my bugbears, and this is, this is where the big event we did in Vancouver came from and why we want to want to do more was I, I remember saying to Robert one day, why are we all sitting here on our tushes getting pins and needles when we're in an environment talking about fascia, which essentially has to keep moving to keep it well. And we're all sitting there doing nothing, intellectualizing about something that isn't an intellectual process. Well, but that's it is then they would have to call it the fascia community conference rather than the fascial research congress, right? So what the, the- oh, whoa, hang on, why? Because the research has got to be into the physical impact as well, surely. It well That was the ultimate goal of Tom Finley. I remember it was 2004, 2005. I was on a phone call with Tom Finley, Tom Myers, Robert Schleip, Diane Lee. We, We had like a little conglomerate of people. And Tom Finley said, we need to create a fascia research congress to bring clinicians and researchers together to forge ahead this fascial industry because fascia is important for people's well-being and we need to bring researchers together to share their work. And it was kind of a like a silence on the phone because the thing, if anybody in clinical research knows, clinicians, the clinical researchers do not (laughs) share their research with one another. They want a Nobel Prize. They're doing it to have their recognition and to get their research paper. They don't want somebody else having their research out there until they do. But That is exactly what happened. In 2007, we had that first Fascia Research Congress. And what was compelling to me was that all of these researchers were presenting their work. And while their constructs and their hypothesis were different, the conclusions were so similar across the board that the final conclusion is that fascia is relevant to function and movement and cells. And so so it, it deems more research. And now here we are in 2022. And I think... Still, we're struggling getting 
clinician and clinical practice in front of researchers to give them something tangible to actually research. Because the problem with this, with, and it's not even a problem, it's actually important. Fascial research is very cellular. It's very microscopic. They're doing a great deal of this in a lab. Um, there's very little of it where they're actually measuring it in clinical practice. And when they do measure it in clinical practice, a lot of times the evidence doesn't show much of anything. And that was kind of a disappointment in some of the um, breakouts that we had at the Fascia Research Congress, where most of them were like, we're not really sure what happened at the conclusion. So we have to do it. We have to do more. You know, like, we're like, we, we, it didn't, we weren't really sure what happened. And, and I was like, well, why would, I mean, are we presenting that to get frustrated or is it, are we presenting it because there's a big blinking light that we need better things to study, like better techniques and better measurements? Because something as simple and banal as, as foam rolling, right? When people see melt, they immediately go, oh, I foam roll or, oh, it's self-myofascial release. And I'm like, well, melt's not really about self-myofascial release. Actually, I don't even believe that fascia releases. If you ask me, I think it rehydrates. I think it's a fluid system. I think there's fluid uh, profusion that you can change. Uh, so I have a problem with the terms that we use. And and we learn in the fascial industry, language is very important and yeah. and uh, terminology is very important. But but I do think that there there could be more connection between the research and the application of science. And I think it would move the industry ahead far faster than the way that we're doing it. Because in this last Fascia Research Congress, I think there were like 500 people there. And I think about it and I'm like, there should be 5,000 people here. But there, there should be so many people here that we don't even know what to do with ourselves. Like there should be breakouts. There should be time for movement each day. There should be time for discussion each day. There should be like a, 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 a you know, like a panel where we can ask a whole bunch of questions. And there was just none of that this year. It was just they talk we're trying to digest all that information. And then you're trying to formulate a question that doesn't make you sound like an idiot and, or, or you're just too scared to ask a question. I mean, I actually got it. I, it's so, so not like me, Joanne. I actually I can't got believe up. you did that. I cannot believe it either. I actually got up and asked a question to Dr. Peter Friedel and it was so hard to ask the question because it was maybe a little philosophical because he was saying, you know, he was talking about cancer and how cancer cells kind of get stuck uh, in these pre-lymphatic channels, kind of get stuck into the collagen and then, and then the collagen contracts back. And that's how they metastasize. And I was like, well, before the cancer sticks, wouldn't it be important for the fluid flow? Like, isn't the message that we should keep moving? And he kind of tried to answer it. And so I tried to ask it another way. And he said, you know, I think we need to sit down and have a cup of coffee and really talk it out. And I thought that was a great reply because what he's saying is you're asking a really high level concept that I don't think we have scientific answers for was what he said to me offline. He's like, you're asking a question that's so powerful that we just don't, we can't measure it. And I was like, how come? He's like, well, we would, we would have to follow somebody and do a really big research study. I would have to have hundreds of human bodies. And that's the thing, Joanne. I, I mean, I've done one clinical research with the New Jersey Institute of Technology and the tens of thousands of dollars that it costs. And then, um, 
and then and then finding the people and you have all this exclusion and you know like body fat was a problem and like 200 people applied for the for the research but if they if they had a high bmi they couldn't be in the research cuz ultrasound can't read through body fat and so how many people who have back pain are overweight and so you know so it was it's it's not as easy so when people say where's your evidence of research i'm like where's your scientific research and i you know what i mean it's like it's not easy to do scientific research outside of a lab where you're working with a rat because a guarantee with a rat he's still going to be in the cage when you come back the next day but after you do a one month research paper you got to get those people who are feeling great back in to remeasure and then you have to pay them to come back because that's how these things work and you learn a lot from trying to do research is that it's kind of a racket it's not easy it's not easy. It's a great big, huge deal. And as you say, the the, the other aspect of it, I, I remember years ago, I was working. I was working with a professor of MRI, and uh, we he had a neck problem, and we were looking. It, it turned out I, I was doing the treatment on him, and he stopped having the neck pain, and then he went and had an, an MRI because he had access to them, and we had changed the hydration, the fluid hydration of the discs in the neck. It was very obvious. And so I said to him that surely the different shaped disc tells you that rehydration has taken place. Indeed. And he said, well, I've been to the um, radiographer who was reading the MRI and they said it was a spontaneous release. And I said, I was quite rude. And I said, I'm sorry, but at your age, this man was in his fifties, late fifties. I said, at your age, spontaneous release like the disc is a little soft bag of fluid and it just popped itself out into a completely different configuration i'm sorry i believe that took 10 very steady sessions of very specific work to reach that point because i, I you know anyway so he said well the the radiographer says we have to have had 6 years of 6 monthly um mris to see if that's the case so i said do you not have any previous ones? Ah, oh, actually I do, because he uses himself as a guinea pig and he had years of these. And what we could see is very simply a, a, a squished disc that very, very clearly carried on squishing and then wasn't squished anymore. It was more hydrated. So then he said- and they said me, it was a spontaneous release. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Miracle. so then he says to me, what would, you, what would you measure if you were doing a piece of clinical research on- on your work. And I said, this isn't about me. This is about the work. Can we show fluid hydration in disc volume? And he said to me, do you have any idea how difficult it would be? It would be impossible because you cannot get, you cannot get enough people. You you would need a hundred people to go through an fMRI and then go through a treatment for a period of time and then do another fMRI and another one. And it's too expensive. You know who does, I think, there's one clinical researcher who I think has forged ahead this industry, who has helped Robert Schleip and many of the others understand measurement, is um, Christopher Gordon. He's, yeah, he's based yeah, in Germany. And yeah, yeah. talk about a brilliant, incredibly talented clinician and how he has, uh, he's developed uh, the fascia releaser and um, some, some sort of a, a, like an egg that kind of like has a, has a, uh, a vibration to it to help pre- people with cyclical breathing, right? Because this can help vagal tone, heart rate variability. But he has figured out ways to clinically measure 
yeah. uh, results. And I have the same thing. I have a myotone device where, you know, we've, we've used the myotone and we see the changes in the fluid perfusion of fascia. You can change the stiffness, elasticity, tone, creep, stress, relaxation of fascia. You can, um, but, but then there's this idea that, well, fascia takes a long time to adapt. And I'm like, well, are you talking about the collagen aspects or the fluid aspects? Because I can change the fluid aspects in 10 minutes. But if you're talking about the collagen aspects, I think you're right. Collagen is, is, is microscopically constantly adapting and changing because of the cells that are tinkering and changing the matrix. But if you have a scar, that's not going to change all that easy. And people who think they can take a roller and iron their IT band like a shirt and think they're going to change the IT band, you're like, first of all, it's designed to be stiff and thick. <laughs> it's like, you know, when everybody's like, well, I got this big lump on the side of my thigh. And I'm like, so do all humans. Leave it alone. I mean, yeah. it's actually part of the human design. And, and that's another thing, Joanne. It's like when we have pain or we think there's a problem, if I always say, you know, it's like you're, if you had a kid who ran up to you screaming for help, you wouldn't punch him in the face, right? You would, you would get down at their level. You would calm them down. You'd let them know they were safe. You'd get information in about what the problem was, and then you would take action. But when our bodies are screaming out for our help, my neck is killing me. The first thing I do is I take a large lacrosse ball and I jam it right into my neck, like as if I'm going to annihilate the pain problem by actually inflicting pain on the exact area that hurts me. And it's like, why would you cause pain as the first route to get out of it? And while I get it, in some instances, you have a scar doing something like Graston technique or creating inflammation is, can be very, very beneficial. Most often with the pain problems that most people have, back pain, neck pain, causing pain or going direct to the source of where you feel it, you are already behind the eight ball because what you're not realizing is that pain is a symptom, but it is not the cause of, of what you're talking about. There, the cause is somewhere else besides the pain spots, almost always. Uh, and like, you know, okay, I find a herniated disc, but why is the disc so herniated? What is the imbalance everywhere in the body causing the issue in the, in the spine? If I sit there and go, oh, we'll just remove the disc, but I don't fix, fix the dysfunction, I'm going to have a hip replacement 10 years after that, right? So we have a very symptom mindset in the general public as well as in uh, uh, surgeons because that's what they are, very myopic. They're very skilled at what they do, but just this one thing. And and so we, we have a very bizarrely um, segmented view of how the human body sustains stability. And I say it in every lecture I ever do that if you talk about stability, fascia is the stability system of the body. It's not your muscles and bones. Your fascia is what is holding everything together. It's holding everything in place. It's actually the roadmap that your DNA used to construct your body when you were just that single cell and then you split and you were two, four, and eight and so on. And, and those membranes on some level or other could be considered a fascia, a, a separating layer of membranous tissue that then develops and, and is specialized, right? And what an incredible system fascia really is that in different areas of our body, it's thicker, it's more dense, it's more areolar and fluffy, it's more slidey and glidey. Incredible. How is it 
that this system knows exactly where to lay down more collagen and it has other areas where it's laying more elastin. It's incredible, this system. And we don't know anything really about it. We know a little, like we know a scratch of it right now. Yeah. But, but I think because of technology, I think in 10 years from now, I think that we are going to uncover so much about because of where epigenetics is, because of the human genome, because of what we understand about stem cells. I think that fascia relates to all of these uh, uh, sciences, but I don't think it's being applied enough. And I think that once we marry fascia into epigenetics, I think that we will have better ways to measure fascia because of what we know about those other sciences. I think it's coming. I think it's just going to take a little bit more push to get us there. And I think I think one of the things that you've highlighted in saying that so brilliantly is that we're dealing with paradox. We're dealing, this yes. is the difficulty, that we're dealing with, as you've just described, a tissue that distinguishes one thing from another in a way, mm-hmm. separates it, but at the same time connects it because it's one whole piece all the time in a continuum. Mm-hmm. And we have to we have to pay homage to, to Neil Thies, for his beautiful work on the interstitium where he talks about the body being united by the spaces throughout that they thought was a, an artifact of microscopy and now find that actually it's not, it's a universal thing. But then the language comes in again, because there aren't really spaces. People hear the word space and they think of that, you know, that bubble chocolate that you have, that's got Mm -hmm. air bubbles in it. It's the body's not full of air bubbles. You know, the, 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 that would be a vacuum and there's no vacuums in the body. It's fluid. That's, that's, that's Dr. JC Gumberto. I remember when I tried to, I I got to talk to him and and he's one, he's been so helpful to me in, in uh, clarifying concepts. And I, I kind of gave him my definition of how fascia morphs and adapts. And he says, ah, you're missing one word. It's called volume. You must increase the volume of space fluid can occupy. And I'm like, the volume of space fluid. So the microvacular is, the microvacules are the spaces, but they're not empty spaces. They're spaces full of gel and fluid. And he's like, exactly. And I said, so as we're moving the actual tension, there's no fluid coming in, but when we let it go, that's where those microvacuoles now distend and distract. He says, exactly. I was like, I got it. And this was like, you know, a decade ago. And it just like, it clicked so well for me about why we, you know, when you sit for long periods of time and you get up and you feel like you aged 40 years because your joints don't work as well when you get up as they do when you sat down, that's a fascial problem. That's all that is. It's, it's a fascial issue. And it's the way that tissue kind of retracts. And if you don't move enough in a day, the tissue is going to stay like that. So we get big fascia allows us to get very good at sitting for long periods of time. And then the problem is when you stand up, your posture still looks like you're sitting down. So you get very, you get (laughs) very designed to look one way, but you know, and then your body's like, wait a minute, are we moving or are we sitting? Cause I can sit really well, but now you're moving and I don't know what that is anymore. So really the problem with our human life is in this day and age is we're sitting too much and, and we are not, we are not moving this tissue and getting those spaces to, to replenish, to fill back up with fluids. And that, that's where, that's where, that's where we're damaging our bodies. That's what's aging you. That's what's giving you your wrinkles and making you feel bad about yourself. It's all of it. I, I love it. And, and this is where I think that all of us are doing our utmost to kind of weave the web with a language that makes sense, not dumbing it down the knowledge, 
but as you said, oh. simplifying it and making it accessible because Jean-Claude, for example, Jean-Claude Gamberto, as you mentioned before, I mean, he calls it the microvacuola collagenic absorbance system. I know. Yeah, and thanks, like, Casey. Let's, make it, let's make exactly. it more difficult. I don't think that's going to catch on, but it's a very brilliant, when you break it down, it's a very brilliant, it says it, it actually says it. He's actually done the job of explaining the system and the fabric itself, but it it's not going to catch on anytime soon. I, I always explain fascia. I go, think a connective tissue kind of like a sponge, right? When a sponge is hydrated, you can squeeze it, bend it, pull it any which way you want. When you let it go, it returns to its ideal shape and it absorbs water very quickly. But a dehydrated sponge, you put pressure on it, you squeeze it, you bend it. It doesn't move or adapt very quickly. When you let it go, it certainly does not go back to its original shape. And it also does not absorb water as well as a moist one tissue like that is not what you want in your body. And if you think about the a sponge and you really look at it, Gil Headley did this so brilliantly in his way of taking superficial fascia, which we like to call the adipose layer, right? And, and they don't want to call that fascia. And he goes crazy over it. And, and so would I, because I mean, I've done enough dissections where you the superficial fascia is where all your lymph is. There's tons of sensory nerves in it. So you cannot deny that the system is fascia. So he took a meat cleaver in a huge piece of fascia and every day in a salt bath, he just kept squeezing and massaging the fat out of it. And he took all the fat out of it. And what did it look like? It looked like a freaking sponge, exactly like a sponge, exactly like a sponge. And so those nooks and crannies that you see and the texture that it is, that's where the fluids are when it's not in a in a living body, right? But in a cadaver, it's just going to look like a sponge. But, but in a living body, there's fluid in the sponge, in the sponge, in the spaces, it's everywhere. But this is where I think also people get um, confused about what fluid means because the only actual liquid in the human body is urine and maybe tears, but the rest of it is bound fluid. So there's a misunderstanding about liquid and hydration. And, you know, and and just this is what gets me because in a in in a podcast with Neil Thies, he said you can't leave the dermis out, and the dermis is connected by the superficial fascia to the deep fascia to the myofascia yeah. to the osseofascia to the that all of these are essential, and the visceral that nothing separate from anything else. You cannot just pull out one bit as a research scientist because it's inconvenient. It doesn't comply with your yeah, descriptions of that which is above it and that which is below. Because, and I'll never forget John Claude saying this at one of the research congresses, there are no layers in the human body. And it's like, I know there are apparent layers and we have to talk about it like that because there's different textures and substrates, but they're not separated. And this is, I think, the whole ancient problem that we go back to is that by dissection, we separate the parts and we think we can then work out how to put them back. And it was it was Dr. Candice Pert in the book Molecules of Emotion. Yeah, I love her. To make full circle of what you've said today, which I thank you so much for. She said that research scientists would rather share their toothbrushes than their research questions. Indeed. And, and she also talked about how essential it was to find a common language, but we can't do that by breaking things down into their component parts and then making overarching theories about how we might put them back together. I'm paraphrasing when in fact we self self organized into being in the first place. And only we know how we did that actually in a way. Well, and, and, and you said That's two things here. 
You, you said two things. One, with JC's work, right, when he says there are no layers, if you go cellularly, if you go microscopic, he's right. But, but even someone like Dr. Peter Friedel, he's like, well, there are membranes. There are, I can show Absolutely. you. Yeah, right? yeah. But, but again, but on a, if you even go more microscopic, there's no layers. But the more macroscopic you go, of course, we can define them in anatomy. Gil Hadley has done that all the time. But the bigger point is what you had said about the difference between bound and bulk water, right? We drink yeah, bulk absolutely. water. But bound water, you know, Dr. Gerald Pollack's work with the fourth yeah. phase of water, this more crystalline-based material, and how fascia kind of has more of a crystal matter to it, and collagen in and of itself kind of acts like a superconductor, right? So really, we could call fascia, and I'm gonna, I'm, you know, I'm gonna give it a nice name. It's a neuromyofascial electrochemical superconducting highway is what it is, right? Doesn't make it easier to understand, but, but it is, it relates to your nervous system, your muscle system, your bones. It's relating to everything because it, you just, how you said it, it's attaching everything. It's giving everything its space. It's giving everything its definition. And space. if you, yeah, it's giving everything its space. And if we removed every other cell and system in the body, but left the fascia, we would see all of the compartments and still be able to define if you were a man, a woman, or whatever you want to call yourself, but we would know what your size of you were. Whereas if we removed everything but the bones, we wouldn't know male, female, we're not really sure, right? But but in a, but in the fascia, our, that's where the story of us is. And I'm still under this mindset of, you know, people talk about our memories trapped in fascia. And we don't have scientific evidence for this as well, but we know that emotional posturing is real. And I just am always curious, why is it that we trap trauma in the body, but we can't trap joy in the body? Why don't we trap joy and happiness in ourselves so that when trauma happens, we can quickly adjust, accept, and move forward in our lives and not get so stuck in the story of the trauma, right? And so is emotion trapped in our body or is it just the truth that you cannot separate the mind or the body, that it is one system, that the central nervous system being the leader, while very important because if I hit your head with a bat, your whole body might not work ever again. They are always connected. There is no separation. And what holds everything together is the tissue in the body that has memory. It it, it anticipates, just like the nervous system anticipates how we want to move. It pre-stresses before we do it. So in, in a sense, it is a brilliant system of us. It is what gives us our the beauty of our form and gives us the ability to navigate in the world as a human. And I think that's amazing. So I think we, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens at the next Fascia Research Congress and where we can move this research ahead and try somehow to tie the nervous system and emotions into it. Because one of the, one of the uh, lectures that Robert had was that they measured people who had severe depression. I thought it was one of the most fascinating research papers that they had, that in depression, fascia does become more stiff. And I, of course it does, because when we're depressed, 
we tend to not move as much, but, and I don't mean that physically. I mean that we don't move emotionally, chemically, neurologically. It slows us down. So I, I think it, I think we're in a, how you said it's, we're in a paradigm. We're in a transformative time of science and research. Technology is getting more powerful. The atomic force microscopy is now being able to really view fascia and cells like never before. It, it's a, incredible where we are. So I think it, I think that the hope for me is that we all follow through on Tom Findlay's uh, hope to bring clinicians and researchers truly together to begin to measure the changes in a body by just going in and caring for ourselves. I think it's important. And there speaks one of the most fundamental truths of spiritual science. Learn to love yourself first, then love others, and together, the biggest Put difference. your own mask on right. on the airplane before you put it on the other. That's as simple well, as Exactly. That. Yeah. And it's otherwise you're you're basically asking your children not only to stumble and fumble, but they're going to witness you dying while you, you know, it's crazy. Put yours on first, put theirs on next, and teach them how to help everybody else. Indeed. Indeed. I love you. Thank you for playing. So thank you so much, Jordan. What a wonderful to spend some time with you. I'm so grateful. And I hope that something that we've said really intrigues somebody listening. So thanks for letting me Uh, chat with you. Yeah, it's just great. And I I hope some people look up Melt Method because I know that the contribution you've made and your YouTube channel and everything are just such a gift to everybody. So thank Thank you you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely.